0: Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Today and next Sunday, it's Father's Day, we're going to finish our study Verse by verse through 1 John. Today in chapter 5, I want to begin reading in verse 12, and we will conclude next Sunday. I'm going to give you Monday through Saturday off before I conclude, but I didn't think you would stay here all week if I finished. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence or boldness that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. Two deans in the university talking one day, and the head of the astronomy department was going to impress the dean of the divinity school or the theological school with his theological perception. And the dean of the astronomy school said, well, let's face it. In religion, what it all boils down to is very simply, you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule, right? And the dean of the theology school said, yes, I suppose that's true, just as in astronomy, it all boils down to one thing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Now, we have a tendency to make truth so simple that it becomes ridiculous. And then we brush it off as something that's not important. John has been writing this letter to assure believers of their salvation. In fact, verse 13 is a verse that even comforted the hearts of those that read it back in AD 90 and read it in 2022. It still comforts our hearts, speaks volumes I want us to look at several things as John begins to conclude. He first reminds us of the certainty of salvation. Assurance. It's a major subject of the whole letter. He wants you to know. In fact, from verse 13 all the way down to the end of the chapter, the word know is used seven times and six of those seven times it's the word oida, O-I-D-A in the Greek, which means fullness of knowledge and state something that's an absolute fact. You can know this. These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. Now in the gospel of John, In chapter 20, verse 31, you read these words, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John, the gospel is written to help people believe in Jesus. And First John is written for those who are believers to be instructed, uh, doctrinally sound, and to be assured of their salvation that they might know. I want you to know, because when you know that you're saved, it changes everything about how you live. Charlie Brown cartooned one time, it was raining heavily, it'd been raining for several days, and Lucy was afraid that the worldwide flood was gonna happen, and Noah's Ark would show up, and Charlie Brown reminded her of the fact that God promised, with the rainbow, that there would never be a flood on the earth again, and Lucy said, Thank you, you've taken a load off my mind. And Charlie Brown said, good theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) And I want you to know when your doctrine is sound and you believe in the Word of God and you understand the Word of God and you interpret the Word of God correctly, it takes a load off of your mind. And with the assurance of salvation as John's cornerstone, he begins to mention some certainties. And one of those certainties Is the certainty or the confidence, I should say, the confidence that we have in prayer. In verses 14 and 15, now this is the confidence that we have in him. There are a lot of assurances in the scripture concerning prayer. I wish I could tell you that my prayer life was perfect. I don't know of anybody that has a perfect one. I wish I could tell you that I've gotten completely over the struggle to pray. It's not that it's always a struggle, but I always have to remind myself. It's not something like eating. You know, if I got hungry for prayer like I did hungry for food, then I would be a prayer, it'd be easier, wouldn't it? But it doesn't happen that way. Prayer is something that we have to keep telling ourselves to do. I I, I read of a lady who wanted to be reminded in prayer, so she went to the pet store, and she said, I want to buy a parrot, a religious parrot. And so the owner of the, of the pet store said, well, I do have a parrot here. And all it ever says, it's a girl parrot. And all she ever says is, let us pray. Let us pray. Lady said, I'll take her. Took her home. Every time that parrot said, let us pray, let us pray, this lady prayed. She began to date a man who actually had a boy Parrot. And after dating a while, the man was coming over one night to eat dinner, and he said, can I bring my boy parrot, and let's let them get acquainted with one another? And sure. So he brought his parrot, and this boy parrot, they set it down in the cage next to the girl parrot, and all this parrot could say, this boy parrot, was, let's kiss. Let's kiss. And the female parrot said, my prayers have been answered. Jesus, Jesus talked about it. Mark eleven twenty four. 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. In Luke 19, 11, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. John 16, 24, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive it and your joy will be complete. Does that mean that you can name something and claim it? No, it does not. You can't blab it and grab it, as I put it. There are conditions. There are conditions on the prayer. John's got good news because we can have confidence in prayer. And, and why can't we have confidence? First of all, it's privilege. The good news, you can pray with boldness. It says confidence. And the word means assurance. Actually, it's translated either confidence or boldness toward God in your translation of the Scripture. But did you know the word means freedom of speech? It's a First Amendment to our Constitution, freedom of speech. Well, here, it's a freedom of speech and prayer. You can come boldly with confidence before God. He wants to hear you. We're told in First Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. What a privilege. All of you have a cell phone, mobile phone. You pick that up anytime you want. and You can bother anybody you want at any time, can't you? <laughs> you pick it up and you call. Some people wonder if it matters the posture you have in prayer. Why do we bow our heads and close our eyes? So you won't be distracted. It doesn't say in the scripture you have to close your eyes. In fact, if you're driving, I suggest you don't close your eyes when you pray. (laughs) The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes. The only proper attitude is down upon his knees. Nay, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight up with outstretched arms with rapt and upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with his eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austere, austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyril Brown. With both my heels are sticking up, my Head a-pointing down, and I done prayed right then and there. Best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed is standing on my head. (laughs) The posture's not important. It's talking and communing with God. It's a privilege. You can talk to the Creator. Think about that. You could talk to God. Prayer's also a promise. When we pray, God hears us. And we have requests that we ask of him. We come into his presence when we pray. We have confidence before him. Prayer's not just mumbling through a a list of repeating or repeating some formula. I I know sometimes you have to write a prayer down. I've prayed for the state legislature. And you have to write the prayer down and turn it in. I guess so they make sure we're not I'm going to pray that the capital falls in or something. I don't know, but they, they record it. But even though I go in there and I use that prayer that I wrote down, I still pray from my heart. I'm not just reading a prayer. But some people just read through a prayer book or stand up and quote a ritual. How many people have, have stood and, or sat and, and uh, repeated the Lord's Prayer? Didn't mean it any more than me stating it. But when you really pray from your heart, God hears you. He doesn't ignore you. But with this privilege and this promise, there is a prerequisite. There's a condition here. The key word is if. If we ask anything according to his will. A lot of people have misconceptions about prayer. God is not some celestial vending machine that gives you what you ask when you put money in the offering box. He's not some genie that's going to come out of a bottle and grant you three wishes. He's our heavenly father. And we know that fathers don't give everything to their children that they ask for. There's an old Danish proverb that says, Give to a pig when it grunts and a child when he cries, and you'll have a fine pig and a bad child. Maybe you're frustrated in your prayer life. It may seem that your prayers aren't being answered. I've actually met people who said, I've tried praying and it didn't work, so I quit. Well, it's like walking into a dark room and flipping the light switch and nothing happens. You don't curse Thomas Edison. You say, I've tried electricity and it doesn't work. No, you you start looking for the reason. Why didn't the light come on? Is the bulb burned out? Is the power off? Did it trip a breaker? You start looking for the reason. You find out why the light didn't work. Well, you find out why your prayers aren't answered. Think of it this way. There are natural laws on this earth. You can't change them. But some of the natural laws have conditions. Water boils at 212 degrees at sea level at standard barometric pressure, which is 29.92 inches of mercury. But if you change the altitude, the temperature to boil water changes. If you're at 8,000 feet in a cabin in the mountains, it only takes 198 degrees Fahrenheit to boil water. That's why some of your recipes are different for higher altitudes. There are spiritual laws as well that have some conditions on them. And there are many people who regard prayer as some kind of mysterious device by which we as human beings can get God to be our divine bellhop and rush to our aid anytime we need help. Now, I know I'm going to get mail from what I'm about to tell you, but you can watch some people on television who are arrogant, and to me, they're kind of blasphemous when they start demanding God to do something. I have the right, I demand, and the more they demand, the louder they get. In the name of Jesus, I tell you to do this. Well, I'm not mocking them, I am really, but I'm not being, I'm being ugly. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that is not What the scripture tells us. You don't demand God to do anything. And no matter how loud you get, prayer is a means of obtaining the will of God and is limited by the will of God and the purpose of God. You're not going to tell him to do something that is contrary to his will. Don't pray to win the lottery. You're not going to get it that way. Oh, I just stepped on some people's toes. (laughs) Gambling's not a great thing anyway. It's poor stewardship. But James, James even says you sometimes pray and you ask amiss in order to consume it upon your own lusts. In other words, a lot of times we just pray for things that we want. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to help with needs. Obviously, He told us to do that. Give us this day our daily bread. But a lot of times, the only time we pray is for something that we want Him to give us. When we need to be asking God, What is your will? What if you don't know what God's will is? You begin to ask Him, What is your will? And you don't bend God's will to yours. E. Stanley Jones illustrated the point. He said, if I throw out an anchor or a hook from a boat and I catch hold of the shore and I start pulling that rope, am I pulling the shore to me or am I pulling myself to the shore? Well, obviously, we're pulling ourselves to the shore. And you're saying, God, I want you to show me what your will is here. Now, it... It doesn't mean, well, I just need to be sincere. Sometimes, sometimes even in our sincerity, our desire is not what God wants for us. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus, when he prayed in Matthew 26, said, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. To pray effectively, you pray in God's will. And God has made his will known to us through his word. Let me give you a couple of things to think about. I didn't write these down for you. To pray in God's will or praying guidelines is my request in line with what God has revealed in Christ and the scriptures? And in other words, am I trying to glorify God or am I trying to glorify myself? God knows our heart. If God grants my request, will it draw me closer to him? Will granting my request be the best thing for everyone or am I just concerned about myself? in making this request am i seeking first the kingdom of god can both god and i enjoy the results you see we're so apt to think that prayer is asking god for what we want whereas true praying true praying is asking god what do you want And when we do that, we have bold assurance that we can approach God in prayer. And when we ask according to his will, we know he hears us. And because we know he hears us, we know he will receive what we have requested. We will receive what we requested. Again, there's nothing wrong with asking God to help you. But if you stop and think about it, most of our prayers are foxhole prayers. I'm in trouble. God, get me out of this. Right? Or, Lord, it's nothing wrong to ask for needs. In the book, Too Busy Not to Pray, it says if the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. Slow down. If you are wrong, God says, grow. Grow in right character and attitude. But if the request is right, the timing is right, and you're right, God says, go, and he grants the request. We have the confidence that we can pray. But did you know you have an assignment in your prayer? We are the people that have Jesus, the Son of God. We have life. We've been saved. We have confidence that we can come before God. Amen? But did you know you're supposed to intercede for others? Notice the commitment to intercession, verse 16 and 17. Prayer is not just a preoccupation with our own affairs. It's not just a blank check drawn on the bank of heaven given to us that so heaven's resources can be purely spent on our needs and pleasure. Prayer implies responsibility. Now listen to me. A lot of Christians haven't gotten this. You know, we we know that, well, as a believer, I'm supposed to walk in the ways of the Lord. I'm supposed to exemplify Him. There are sins I don't want to commit, and, and, and we're growing in the walk. But did you know you have the responsibility, because you have God's ear, to pray for other people? It's a responsibility. It's not an option. Prayer implies responsibility, and part of that responsibility is interceding for others. Now, here's a passage of Scripture that is very, very difficult to interpret and explain. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't completely understand all of it. Because every time I think I do, I have a piece still left in my hand that doesn't fit my Puzzle. I can give you some that I know are wrong. Then I'm going to tell you the way I lean and why I do. The sin unto death. But before we talk about that, I want you to see one other word, verse 16. It says, if anyone sees his brother. That implies that's, a, that's the word for Christians. It's not just mankind in general. It's the word for you see another brother or sister sinning a sin. The key word is see. Did you see it? Not hear about it, not read it on social media. Did you see it? Now, other passages of Scripture would tell us that we ought to go to them in love and Try to keep them from headed down that path. But if you've seen somebody headed down the wrong path, especially another Christian or a Christian, what do you do? You pray for them. Now, I know what you're wanting to know. What is the sin unto death? Well, first, let me tell you what it's not. Some people believe that it refers to a particular heinous Sin, which God will not forgive. Similar to murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree. Murder in the first degree is premeditated. Murder in the second degree is not premeditated. And the rabbinical law, the rabbis of that time, further elaborated these distinctions. And after a while, forgivable and unforgivable sins filtered into especially the Catholic Church. They call them mortal or venial sins. Mortal sins are ones that God won't forgive. Venial sins are the ones that will. You cannot support that view with the scripture. You can with traditions or whatever, but you cannot support that from God's word. So that's not what that means. The only unforgivable sin is when you reject Jesus Christ as your savior, period. A second view is that John is thinking of what we would call apostasy, namely that A person is really born again, but then they walk away from it like the Gnostics who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, later repudiated Jesus. But folks, the scripture doesn't bear that out either because once you've been born again, you're not unborn again. Now, there are a lot of people who profess, speak it, that they're Christians, but John says... They never were of us. When they went out from us, they never were of us. And the Gnostics never were born again because, first of all, if you didn't believe Jesus came in the flesh and you didn't believe Jesus was divine, you can't be born again. So the Gnostics weren't believers to begin with. And then there are those who would say it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which basically is rejecting Jesus Christ and the call of God on your life which John would not call a hardened sinner like that. A person who's rejected Jesus Christ wouldn't call him a brother. So it's not talking about believers rejecting Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? The fourth view is the one I lean toward. I'm between that and somebody who professes Christ has never been born again and walked away. Not been saved, but thinks they have been or said they have been. But I, the fourth view is speaking of physical death on a Christian by God as a result of them persisting in some deliberate sin. Are there examples to back that up? Yes. Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied, they died physically right then. That didn't mean they went to hell but they died physically. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks, Paul speaks of, they're they're talking about rampant sin and abusing the Lord's Supper and abusing a lot of things. And, And Paul speaks of those who are now sick or now asleep. They've died physically. The word asleep is always used for Christians in the New Testament. Death speaks of the second death, or, or, or away from God in hell. But when Christians fall asleep, they know they're going to heaven. They're not; their soul is not asleep. But the but the, the terminology that the New Testament uses is a, asleep, and it could be. And and I don't. Here's the problem: we don't know when that is. I don't know if if I if I were to. I guess walk away and be more detriment to God's kingdom than I am help and I'm not coming back and all that. God may be like a parent whose children are out on the playground and, and they're fighting. And you go out there and you say, now listen, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to make you come inside. And you go back inside and they keep fighting. And he said, now listen, I'm telling you, this is your last warning. If you don't stop fighting, I'm going to make you come inside. And still so they fight and you go out there and say, okay, I told you, you're coming on in. Come on home. Well, no, 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 please don't make me. I, no, I told you, I warned you. I don't know if, if God ever, well, I, I guess he does. If somebody is to that point, he may just say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you home. Now, here's the danger. You and I never know when that happens. So what confuses me is how do I know to pray and not to pray for somebody because I don't know that they're too far gone. So what I want you to understand is that instead of focusing on the sin and the death, the point of the whole passage is to pray for people that we see headed down wrong path and pray that God would restore them pray that God would bring them back pray that God would use you to help bring them back does that make sense even if it doesn't you out of your head so I may feel a little better folks the difficulty with this passage is that some Christians Focus so much on the sin, and, and, and John goes on to say in verse 17 all unrighteousness is sin. And we're to pray for one another. Peter, the apostle Peter, spent three years with Jesus. And at the time of Christ's arrest, denied him three times, openly, flagrantly, with cursings and oaths. And we might say that if we didn't know the end of the story, that if anybody had sinned a sin unto death, it certainly was Peter. Peter didn't die physically or spiritually at the time. He had a lifetime of useful service. And far from refusing to pray for him, Jesus interceded for him because in Luke 22 Jesus said Simon Simon Satan has asked to sift you as wheat but I have prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back strengthen your brothers we hear of people who have fallen, have not finished well, maybe they were active serving the God, and then we hear that they failed. Sometimes people down deep sort of gloat over that, well, he or she got what they deserved. It ought to break our heart. And don't you think for a moment that you're beyond that ever happening to you because all unrighteousness is sin. So we need to pray, especially for believers, amen? We need to pray for one another. It's your assignment. It's not an option. Jesus said, John said, we pray for them. Maybe they were drifting toward the Gnostic teaching, and he's saying, "Pray for them instead of talking about them." We're all guilty. We're all guilty. Talking about people, and then have you noticed? We're we're supposed to pray for the lost. One thing I've learned in in my long life is that lost people act like lost people. I want to tell you, I'm going to be candid with you. I do not like praying for some of the leaders in our country. You would not be proud of some of the prayers I have prayed for them. (laughs) And lightning hadn't come down yet. <laughs> don't like them. Don't like what they stand for. Maybe I like them as a I don't even know them as a person, but I don't like. But I've started changing my prayer. Lord, help them meet you as their Savior. Because if they meet Jesus, it changes everything. I'm not saying they say they... Oh, they say they know him. They know him about like I know how to speak German. And I don't. We need to pray for one another. We're under attack. And Christians need to pray for one another. That's what John is saying you have Jesus in your life and you know that you've been saved and you have boldness and confidence to come before God and he hears you and it is his will for you to intercede for other people. Now all of you right now know someone that needs you to pray for them because they're off track. And so during this time of invitation today, I'm going to ask you to pray for them. You're the only one, you may be the only one that'll ever intercede for them. We're the ones that know. Do you know that you have eternal life? How is your prayer life? Does it need improving? You're in good company. I would dare say the majority of us in here, it needs to improve. But do you intercede for other people, for other Christians? I want you today to pray for your Sunday school teacher and your director. Pray for the deacons, pray for the leaders. Pray for other people. Pray for your family. You ought to be praying for your grandchildren, your children. You see the assignment? There'll be a test. (laughs) Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for failing our assignment to pray for one another. Even now, Lord... Those people that come to mind, we lift them to you and ask you, Lord, that somehow in your way, you would bring them back to the right path, that you would put them back on track. We pray for our families. As that song was sung a while ago, we speak Jesus over our families. And for those who are downhearted and depressed, we pray for them. I lift up those who don't know that they know Jesus. They hope and they wonder, but Lord, I ask you to give them confidence and boldness that they know they've been saved. And Lord, continue to teach us how to pray in your will. Times you've said no, thank you, Lord, for saying no because you know better than I do. I lift up those who may need a church. If this is the place, you bring them here. Some need to be baptized. They've been saved. They've been born again. But they've not taken the first step of obedience, and that's to profess them, profess you before other people. So, Lord, during this time of invitation, bring to our hearts the people we need to intercede for. Would you quietly stand? Would you keep your heads bowed? There are men here to receive and pray with you as you come. And we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make you stand up here in front of everyone. But as the Spirit of God leads you, and maybe somebody needs to be prayed with, these guys stand ready. Or if you want to talk about knowing Jesus, you come and we have some rooms outside to sit down and visit with you. Would you come right now? Pray for your Sunday school teacher by name. Pray for somebody that you know is headed down the wrong path. Pray for some lost people. Would you come? Is there anybody? prayer group that meets here on Monday nights, praying for the nation, interceding, praying for God's purpose and will. There's a group that meets on Tuesday morning, praying for different prayer requests that you've turned in. We have several different prayer groups. There's others that meet during the week, but all of us have the assignment to pray for others, not just ourselves.